We had a great conversation. This is Dr. Eric Miller. He will be back again. Um, I hope you enjoyed yourself. And uh, yeah, definitely uh, inspiring person to be around, um, board certified internal medicine and obesity medicine. We get to dive much more into that certainly in the future. Um, so stick around with us and uh, you'll see us next time. Thank you. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. You too, finally. I know. I've been told numerous times we get to meet. I know, and there every it is. time you live here, and every time I'm here, um, you're not here, or you're you're traveling. You do travel a lot, which is super cool. Obviously, a perk of working in telehealth. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's so nice to meet you. Um, for people who don't know, we both work for Rougette Health. And uh, how long have you worked for Rougette? I think three years. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of interesting in our industry that we would both be physicians working for a healthcare company, and it's a relatively small company. And uh, as far as, you know, members that are working there and um, we haven't met yet. Yeah. So glad we finally get to. It's funny. I when we started the concept of let's create a podcast and we were talking about how we would have you on. And of course, I was like, this was months and months ago. I was like, we should meet on the podcast. <laughs> and they're like, OK. And so I literally was trying to put my foot down because, you know, things change over time and weeks and planning. And I was like, no, we're going to not see each other until the podcast. So it's great to finally meet you. Same. Um, I have some questions that I actually prepared just because you have a lot of experience in different things that I'm interested in and uh, just want to pick your brain on, on different things. But um, I guess if you want to kind of just explain a little bit about who you are to get started and uh, we'll go from there. Cool. Uh, originally from New York. I'm okay. 45, which is crazy, but yeah. Uh, been practicing since 2008. I'm dual boarded in internal medicine and obesity medicine. And uh, my kind of path through my career in medicine has been rather unconventional. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I remember when I graduated residency, the question I would get is, are you going to do inpatient or outpatient? I was like, neither. Yeah. <laughs> and my first gig out of residency was I moved to Vegas and I was a house call doctor for the strip. Incredible. It was the coolest thing. I had a bag and some meds and had a prescription, had a pharmacy that would deliver meds. Yeah. And that's it, man. I went, I would go up and down the strip seeing patients. So you knew during training that the typical like uh, trajectory for you was not to be um, kind of followed through. And I, I kind of, I certainly relate to that. I knew actually in residency, um, I, I kind of had a little bit of a mental breakdown because I was like, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I really wanted to do. I didn't feel like I was really making much of an impact in the system. So it sounds like that's kind of how you viewed it as well. Exactly. And what's really cool is I did about a year of that. And then I ended up going into, um, I did out, I did inpatient medicine first. So I was in Vegas, moved back to the East Coast, did some inpatient work. And I, and I love the duality of life because I had to have that experience of what I feel did not work right. in order to kind of put me on the path that I'm on now. So I did some inpatient for several years, transitioned to outpatient, uh, and then over time ended up where I am now, which I couldn't be more grateful for. Yeah, I, I uh, let my inpatient training end at residency. I knew it just wasn't for me. Yeah. I, I mean, family medicine, most of us go into primary care, urgent care, you know, outpatient. Um, but I just really found a lot of my time was uh, spent with administration and really very little patient to patient interaction in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And even now, years later, I recently had a family member who got really sick and we went to the hospital and we saw the doctor for like 30 seconds. And 
at my expense as a patient I'm, or as a family member, I was like, this is horrible. This is unacceptable. My family has no idea what's going on. But then as the provider, I'm like, he's got 80 patients to see today. Yep. So who, no one is winning here. And so I, I totally can understand. <laughs> Interesting system. <laughs> Interesting system. And yeah. hopefully we can at least be some sort of a voice to uh, open people's minds to what is really happening in that space you know uh, when my family left the hospital all of the anger and frustration was directed directly at the doctor who literally had zero say in how much time he could really spend you know mm -hmm. it looks on paper and it looks physically like the doctor has plenty of time to come and sit and chat and they're just avoiding you or trying to get to the next one as quick as possible but mm -hmm. to get through your day you have to so it's it's hopefully nice we can at least speak for some of us out there definitely <laughs> and i realize that's kind of um you know they're actually to be honest, there were years where I questioned why I became a doctor. Yeah. Really yeah. felt stuck, really felt disheartened. And now I realize it took me time to finally step into this um, space where I, I, I became a doctor so that I could have a platform to really um, kind of propel people in a, in a way that I feel is, is the path to real wellness. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it, that you've really been able to do that. A lot of providers that I know, and even myself, I'm still struggling to like figure out how I can do that optimally, you know, and, and really fulfill everything that I want to accomplish and all the things I want to help people with. I think medicine too, especially in primary care, there's so much to encompass and in, in treating a patient and to open your own like primary care office. It's like, you have to see so many patients, you have to hire so much staff, <laughs> you have to go into so much debt, and you really don't also get to focus on the things that you're passionate about, primary care and internal medicine. It's such a wide scope, yeah. right? And, and you see patients throughout the day for all different concerns and you just feel like you can't really make a huge difference. Also, what about living your life? Right, that too. Where did that come in too? And that's what really got me. Like, that's what really got me. You haven't me. even got there yet. Yeah. <laughs> but absolutely, you know, there's, there's no time for that. And I have uh, a good friend of mine who's actually a nurse practitioner and he opened his own office in Orlando. And uh, we actually both decided to open a direct primary care office at the same time. I tapped out in six months because I was <laughs> like, I have no time. I, I had more time working at the urgent care. So this is how the system builds it, right? So they want to keep you in the hospital. They want to keep you at the urgent care where they pay you a salary and you go clock in and clock out because you're exhausted by the end of that. Imagine trying to do all the ins and outs of everything else. Mm -hmm. It's not possible. So then you're forced into these positions that you're miserable in, that you can't make a difference in, you have no say in any of the direction of the company uh, or how patients are cared for. Anyways, we just got started in like... <laughs> <laughs> I think we're this could go on for hours. <laughs> so we'll try to narrow the scope sure. because clearly we're gonna have to talk again multiple times uh, over the, the series of this podcast. But jumping into my next question was, so started uh, you know seeing patients on the Vegas Strip and now you are, um, in telehealth and doing other things, but how did you make that transition into telehealth? Uh, that's really interesting. I'm trying to think how that happened. It was more of like something I manifested. So I started to realize early in my career that there were several things that I didn't feel resonated with me. One was the, the setup of the Western medical model, which I feel is fairly uh, disempowering for the patient. Yeah. And secondly, like, when do I get to live my life? So I realized that I wish when I was younger, because I wanted to be a doctor since I was four. I don't know how it got there, but it was planted in me. My, my, no one, there's no medical people in my family. I'm the first doctor in my family, but I want to be a doctor since I was four. And I realized now being older, I wish someone had asked me when I was younger, what kind of life I wanted. Right. 
not what I wanted to do. It's like, I will never ask a child, what, what do you want to be? Right. Or like, what kind of life do you want? Because yeah. I started to realize that there were several gaps, again, in my kind of lack of resonance with the Western model, but also like, when do I get to create freedom? When do I get to live? When do I get to do yeah. the things I want to also do and have passions outside of my career? Right. So that's what I started to realize. And I, I started to envision this life where I can create impact but I can also create leverage and I can create freedom in my life. And it just little by little, it wasn't like a, a, I set out on this path. It was just something I I manifested really. And yeah. little by little, it started to happen. So first I transitioned into doing, I worked for one platform and they had asked me, oh, would you be okay getting licensed in this state, that state, this state? And I started to realize, hmm. And by, you know, eventually I had nine or 10 state licenses and I realized that was the key. Yeah. I realized that was the key to freedom in medicine. And I started to just gather licenses and realize that I can create more impact. I can work in multiple states rather than being locked down to one clinic, one hospital, just like providing impact for maybe a small isolated group. I now like, I, I can just like diversify my impact. That's kind of really how I describe it. And that's what I've done. And it's, it's absolutely been amazing. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I was working at an urgent care and really unsatisfied. Um, and it was such a shame because it was really my first experience outside of residency. I wasn't getting along with the clinic staff. I mean, I looked like 20 years old, which I still get <laughs> clocked on sometimes. So the staff didn't respect me. The administration didn't respect me and I just didn't feel happy. And so, um, I was just trying to look for things different on the weekends. I could just substitute some of my time. And I even thought about just completely quitting and working like one or two days a week and finding some way to just make it through to survive that way finding some freedom. So I found a platform similar. Uh, I had two licenses actually in residency. I had this dream I was gonna move to Hawaii one day, which is so funny because we'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. But so I got my license in Hawaii and my license in Florida. And uh, I worked on one platform. They said, hey, can we get you like four more licenses? And I was like, okay. And I didn't even really know what that meant or what implications that would have. So I started seeing more patients on that platform. Um, and I realized I was seeing patients at home, which working at home was just much better for me. I just felt more free. And I still worked for a large organization and they were um, well-established. So I didn't feel like it was that big of a change from the urgent care, but I was at home and I could at least feel somewhat freer than I did confined in the four walls of, of that clinic. Um, but exactly how you mentioned the state licenses and a lot of people will say to me, oh my God, you have 49 licenses. That was so crazy. And looking back now, I, I mean, I didn't do it on my own. I luckily was able to have companies help me and, and that I was working for at the time. But a lot of people ask, how did you do it? And, and what can I do to do it? And even when I renew my licenses by myself, it is a struggle. I mean, they make it very difficult financially. There's a lot of hoops you have to jump through. Did you have to do a lot of that on your own? Or were you fortunate enough to have a company kind of process that for you? So the company processed a lot of them, but then I also discovered the, uh, inter the medical licensure compact, yes. um, IMLCC. And that is just, what a game changer Yeah, it's, for our little niche we have. For sure. And I think really any physician that is even remotely interested in telehealth should just have that in their back pocket. It's definitely the easiest way. Certainly you have to live in a certain state or have at least an organization in a state. But what people don't know is, for example, in Florida, you can't apply for the that compact agreement because it's not one of the states that mm -hmm. you can live in. But if you form an LLC in another state, like Colorado, and you employ yourself in Colorado, virtually or remotely, you can use your LLC as the business that you work for 
It's you apply for the license. So that's what I did. It's brilliant. <laughs> you yeah, know, that's step number one is getting, yes. is getting that compact. Step number one. Yes. I think too, telehealth kind of gives you some of the power to feel like you're in more control of, of what you're doing. Uh, it makes you learn business a little bit more. Obviously in my training, I learned nothing about business. I mean, I don't know what your residency was like or medical school. Did you get any business no, training whatsoever? Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> Zero. So my goal was as a kid, when I would go to my pediatrician's office, it was very old school. He was writing paper charts. Obviously this is many years ago. And I was like, I want to do this here, like a nice nurse at the front. It was very bare bones, but it was kind of like my idea of what a doctor was. And that stuck through me, even through medical school. When you get in residency, you realize that all your dreams are shattered and that's not possible. But <laughs> so I, I just knew that that's what I wanted. But even in medical school, I didn't pick up on the fact that none of those skills were taught to me. I didn't know how to even apply for a, a, a mortgage to get a space to mm -hmm. rent out. And that should be, that's basic, right? But they don't. I say they as if there's an enemy out there trying to get us. I don't really believe that, but I do believe that the system is just not built for physicians and healthcare providers to feel um, to feel like they can start on their own, like they have freedom or that they can um, you know do things themselves. It feels like as soon as you're in residency, it's all about finding another contract with another company. Yeah. Well, again, this might be my own bias towards our, our, our education system, but we're taught to be employees. <laughs> exactly. Right. So we're taught to be employees. So we're kind of with, I don't know if it's purposeful but that they withhold the education about certain things, but doctors notoriously are known to be terrible business people because we're not taught these things. Right. Like we're just plugged with particular types of information and we don't, so it's just, but I think it's kind of how the system is created, whether it's purposeful or not. That's yeah, how it kind of is. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely go on and on about that <laughs> yeah. as well. But um, <laughs> let's get to the next sure. question. So um, in your uh, regards to... I keep hitting the mic. <laughs> in your regards to how telehealth has changed just over the last few years, have you noticed anything? Uh, I mean, I definitely have. I'm not... I'm not sure what your perspective is, but do you think it's changing in the right direction, in the wrong direction? I've kind of shifted my my, my practice. I don't really do direct patient care anymore. So, sure. you know, with with Rougiette, uh, we do asynchronous consultations, which I love. Yeah. But I don't do any direct consultations. Um, right. I, I do a lot of collaborations with nurse practitioners on several platforms. But yes, I, I, I kind of have moved myself away from direct encounters the telemedicine platform like i for a while i worked on several like um actual like urgent care type platforms and it was sure. just not my jam it was like doctors were fighting for patients mm -hmm. and it was very strange and at some point i was wondering if people had like a bot because there were some docs who were getting all yeah it was really weird it was like hungry hungry hippo i would describe it like doctors fighting for for you know for for encounters and yeah, this wasn't my thing. So, uh, and just to backtrack a little bit about what an asynchronous encounter is, basically the patients will complete a consultation via a form or a questionnaire, and then we review their medical history, their medications, all of their qualifiers to determine if the treatment is appropriate for them. Certainly asynchronous telemedicine is not appropriate for everything, but for erectile dysfunction, it works literally perfectly. I think it's probably out of every async platform that I've used the most optimal form to treat a patient for erectile dysfunction is asynchronous care. And then I completely agree with you in regards to some of the other platforms that I've worked on. It's interesting to me. I do have, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in telehealth, a lot of the time companies want to make sure that they don't give a provider too much power. And by doing that, 
they hire as many providers as possible, and they want you to compete with each other. So you're so focused trying to fight each other over a patient, you don't realize that they've created the environment that you're in right now. They've created this hostile work environment where you're literally sitting on the clock, not getting paid unless you grab patients, but there aren't any to grab. So you're sitting there just on your computer waiting to click, click, click. We're physicians. We've been trained for... 12 plus years to help treat people and you're going to tell me I need to sit here for an hour and keep hitting refresh. Mm. Like, you know, it's frustrating. But I, I think that that is where a lot of the larger platforms have gone. Obviously, more people are interested in telehealth now. So we're seeing more competition and more people getting, uh, you know, uh, employed through these big platforms. Unfortunately, I wish there were more options for providers to work in telehealth independently, you know, create your own platform, create your own. So you have, you know, at least in primary care and urgent care that creates more competition. It creates more um, ability for providers to feel independent, you know, especially if you're doing something so simple as what you would do at an urgent care or a clinic elsewhere, but they want to, you know, try to prevent that in order to, you know, keep the dollars in the corporate pockets, which this is really not the, the, the my, my intention for this podcast. <laughs> right. But, you know, you can put two telemedicine or physicians together in general. We're going to start talking about corporations yeah, at some of point. Course. Look, I'm grateful for freedom. Yeah. I'm grateful for, for... And I think we're both fortunate enough to work with Rougette where they... We've been here, you know, to see them evolve. They've evolved with us. They really appreciate our feedback. And I think that a lot of their success is because of the happiness in everyone in the company. You know, we're all happy to be here. We love our patients. We love what we do. And in comparison to other places I've worked where they're like, why are our feedback scores so low? Why are our patients unhappy? Why are we losing patients? Because the providers are unhappy. How am I going to practice good medicine and be happy to contribute in this environment when you're making me miserable? Mm -hmm. You know, and then they just fire you and get a new one who is then going to be miserable too. Fire, get a new one. And then eventually they run out and then you just keep seeing their ads on ZipRecruiter and indeed <laughs> looking for new. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately we're expendable. Yeah. And it was, I remember years ago I, I was doing an outpatient gig and I remember my supervisor constantly like riding me just constant negative feedback. And I literally went to his office one day and he was an old timer. And I said, do you have any, is there any place for acknowledgement? And he said, if you're looking, I remember these words, quote, he said, if you're looking for acknowledgement, you're in the wrong career. Can you believe? And I, I, <laughs> I, and that really stuck with me because, and that's what's different about platforms like Rougette. Like right. you get acknowledged there. It's, it's people are personable. There's connection, there's relationship. It's not just right. you're an expendable cog in the wheel. Right. Completely different. And that's what makes the difference between like a career and a job. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that mentality in those large telehealth corporations is not just for providers, it's for patients too. Mm -hmm. Their patients are expendable. Mm -hmm. Too much too much drama with a patient, kick them out. We're not gonna deal with it. This is your issue, whatever. Here, it's totally different. Mm -hmm. I've never seen customer support take as much leap and bounce to get in touch with me, to help a patient, to find a prescription, to make sure it's getting to them on time, if they need something overnighted, if they need something adjusted. You know, we are all hands on deck and it's a team effort. It's just completely different than, you know, when we're, at least when I'm in another company, which is why I don't work at those other companies anymore. <laughs> well, it's brilliant also because you realize that these patients, obviously they're men, right. are coming to us in a very vulnerable state. Yes. Like, very, like I remember when I worked out patient and erectile dysfunction came up, it was like, it was as they're walking out the door, it was kind of like, hush, hush, like, hey, right. by the way, I'm having this, you know, yes. Yes. but 
so patients that come to us in Rougiette, and they're they're vulnerable. So yeah. yes, treat them like people. Treat them. Yes. Understand that. Be conscious of that. Yep. And that's what we do. And that's what again sets this apart than working in a corporate gig, which, whew, never do again. Yeah, I'm on my way there. <laughs> I'm still employed. <laughs> I'm grateful. But, you know, yeah, it's it's definitely a dream, and that's why you inspire me so much. Even though we haven't met, I've read some articles about you that you know the the team has shared with me, Thank and you. you obviously are, in my opinion, a great vision for someone in their 40s. You you look incredible. I'm Thanks. sure you hear it all the time. Um, I hear it too that I look good for my age, so I'm hoping to keep it in my 40s. Um, but but yeah. So as far as um, how you live your life. In medicine, you know, we've already talked about how it's important that you're able to have your personal time and your personal life. Like, how did you make that transition? Did you decide, I'm just going to stop working at this place on this day and I'm going to start focusing more on me? Or did was it like a transition period? Yeah, I think I saw, again, I started gathering licenses and then I, start, I saw that there was a niche where... Look, there are lots of medical businesses and every medical business of some sort needs a medical director. And I started yeah. to realize that there were lots of ads on like Indeed and all these all these other platforms looking for medical directors constantly. And then I started looking for like virtual medical directors and I realized there's a lot of opportunity and that's what I started to transition to. Yeah. I realized that I can pr- bring value to things that I feel you know, resonate with things like Rougiette. Right. Uh, and that's what I started to do. I started to pick up these 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 medical director gigs and I started to pick up uh, nurse practitioner collaboration gigs. And that's really what I do now. I'm, I'm, I'm a professional medical director to some degree. Um, I consider myself either a medical hustler or a medical entrepreneur. Yeah. Because that's really what resonates with me to create value and impact while also creating freedom and leverage in my life. Absolutely. We get to have both. There, yeah. I think there used to be this belief that doctors were purely here for service. And I think it's beautiful, great, yes, and we also get to live our lives. It's one life, and there's a lot of beautiful things we get to experience, and I choose both. Yeah, I think it's also really interesting that the idea of a doctor being a a person of complete service, that really, I think, was adopted back when a doctor could be their own uh, business person, their their own brand, their own clinic, their own company, their own business, you know? I think if I had my own shingle, my own clinic <laughs> that I ran completely and it was possible for one person as a physician to run, I think I would feel much more inclined to be devoted to service because you can manage it. It's impossible now. You mm-hmm. can't you don't you don't have the time, you don't have the weekends, you don't have any moment to yourself if you're trying to be your own business because there are so many restrictions with Medicare, with Medicaid, with insurance, with your administration, with making sure all of those I's are dotted and T's are crossed. It's impossible to be a complete devotee to servicing patients and still function as a human being. It's not even just taking time for yourself. It's like having a moment to breathe, you yeah. know? And so I definitely think that in order to be successful and to have time for yourself, you in some ways do have to hustle your career. You know, you have to figure out, uh, you know, what works for me, how I can be the most efficient. I think in telehealth too, that's something I learned. The more efficient you are, the more time you have with your family, the more time you have with your friends, and the more time you can devote to your patients, all because you're just being efficient. And so... Yeah, working smarter, not harder. I know. I think you can apply that anywhere. Of course. Absolutely. I agree. Are you married? No. No. It's my aura ring. Oh, it helps you with the sleep, right? Yeah, sleep tracker. 
Does it, have you noticed like a... a yeah, because my sleep was a mess and now I can actually see it improve. So I'm wow. making adjustments. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm honestly so excited to meet you. I feel like we have a lot. I feel like today's been awesome. I'm so happy. It's a great first start. Yeah. You know, how old are you? I'm 32. Okay. You look yeah. like you're 22. You look like you're 32. I appreciate it. I take it. <laughs> I mean, the, the beard will hopefully make me... Uh, this is new, so hopefully it'll I add like a little it. bit. Thanks, it's new. Yeah, I'm going to give it a shot. I've tried before and always end up annoying the crap out of me and I shave it. I don't have, like... My facial hair grows um, like a cat, kind of oh. like whiskers, so I actually have get laser hair removal on my face really? because it I used to my body patchy. with that. Do you? I did, I did one session. I cannot believe what a difference it made. You've one done session. one session? No, just, just the back and chest. Oh. Arms I shave. But, like... I could not, one session, and it's like yeah. crazy what a difference it is already. It also makes a huge difference on your hyperpigmentation, at least for me, because there's a little IPL in the laser that they use. Mm. So I have a lot of blotchy skin, a lot of rosacea kind of spread out everywhere. And so it's made a big difference because wow. I get lasered pretty much everywhere yeah. too. <laughs> I couldn't believe how easy it was. Yeah. And why I didn't do this years ago, 45, why did I wait so long? It's so funny. The first, um, the first credit line I ever pulled was at a company called Ideal Image where they do laser hair removal. I was 18, I know that. 18 years old. Really? I walked in, they're like, you have no credit? Fine, we'll give you some. Cool. And I started lasering at 18. Wow. <laughs> I got a place now. It's like um, it's like forever. It's like lifetime. Yeah. So Ideal does that too, but they, I, I don't. I, this is not a sponsored ad by them because I do not <laughs> recommend them. But uh, they are very expensive, and I can never get an appointment. Oh. Like they, they'll have an appointment for six weeks, and then I'll like have to change, and then they'll be like, "Sorry, the next one's in twelve weeks." Mm. I'm like, "You already got all my money." Yeah. So now they don't want to give me my service. But anywho. Yeah. Sure. So I guess I wanted to touch back on, uh, I get a lot of questions about people asking, you know, what is 49 state licenses like and, and how did you get that? And so going back to pre pandemic days, I don't know if this is when you started getting your licenses, but in my opinion, based on the companies I worked with, they were able to get my licenses relatively quickly. Um, I sat down with an agent one day, she brought me like 45 mortgages, literally with multiple pages that I signed over and over again into my fingerprints. Luckily, she made this process super easy for me and my licenses came pretty quickly. I had at that from that, it wasn't 49 at that time, I had actually about like 38 and then I started getting them little by little throughout the pandemic, but for me, even after the pandemic, as I've gotten the last few, it's gotten a lot more complicated. I don't know if you've tried to apply for licenses recently, but it was- no, I haven't, and the reason being, I'm like a little, now I'm getting to the point where I realize the more licenses you have, some states you have to get verification uh, from each individual state, and as, so as you compile this, like, you have so many, like I have 22, and yes. so I've been asked recently to get California, and I'm like, I guess like I'm like intimidated about getting into the application because it's a process, man. Yeah, and that's kind of what I realized too. So I think a bulk of why it was so easy is I was applying for all of them at the same time. So there was no license verification from each state. Oh. So I was submitting them all at the same, not having the others at the time. And as they would trickle in, I didn't have to provide that license mm. verification because I didn't have them yet. So I think that you actually hit the, hit the nail on the head there. The most difficult part now is if you were to go apply for another license like California or Massachusetts, you have to get all 40 plus of your licenses to be verified from those states, which costs a fee mm -hmm. and is a paper trail and is difficult because you're dealing with individuals who are doing this in different um, organizations. So why can't we just have one like federal license? I don't understand. Come on. You really know, you know the answer to that question. I want them. Why do you think? <laughs> I mean, I <laughs> We know money. <laughs> exactly, it's a racket. I know. So currently, you know, you're obviously doing telehealth, but you have 
a lot of things going on. Um, what are some of your current passions and projects that you're really excited to be part of? Yeah. The big one is a medical director for a psychedelic center here in Austin sure. called Within. And it's uh, been amazing to watch that flourish. And it's been amazing to kind of be um, involved in this, I think, what's going to be the next revolution in medicine, evolve above ground. Psychedelics obviously have been around since 60s, 70s, but, and, and been utilized you know, below the surface. And now it's starting to come above ground. And it's really just unbelievable. Um, I'm so grateful to be a part of that because these things work and yeah. so it's something I'm really passionate about. So moving into an industry or an area of medicine that is uh, considered unconventional, um, how did you navigate that process? And there's not obviously a lot of support for people who are interested in, in this, these, I don't even want to say alternative therapies because they're not, mm -hmm. that's how they want to be classified because, uh, many different reasons, but uh, the main one being that it's not owned by a corporation and you can't slap a fancy branded pharmaceutical label on it because it's a generic. So we have to call it an alternative therapy. How do you navigate moving into that as a physician who's never had experience doing something like that before? For me, it's a question of whether it works. Right. Um, because a lot of what I spent time as a physician doing, as you know, and part of the reason why I got so frustrated <laughs> is a lot of what we do I'd say maybe 98% of what we do is just band-aiding. Right. And psychedelics work. Right. They change people's lives. They, they really create shifts. They, they help to untangle trauma. So they work. And so for me, that's all I need to know. And if I get looked at, you know, sideways, if, um, if people think I'm strange, if people, my colleagues disagree, it's really relevant to me. Yeah. It works. Right. And I've been looking for things that work. And that's, that's been a quest of mine over you know, 14, 15 years since I've been practicing is what works. Because a lot of what we do does not work. Sure, definitely. Can you walk me through what it is like for a new patient at the clinic? Like if they're interested or if, yeah. and I mean, even backtrack a little bit further, like who qualifies or who would be an ideal patient? Uh, for the most part, we're treating patients who have treatment-resistant depression, uh, PTSD, anxiety. Uh, we at our clinic, where we haven't started implementing this, but it is being found that certain eating disorders, uh, we do uh, support with addic uh, addictions as well. Right. Um, there's a there's a long laundry list of patients who benefit, predominantly in the mental health space. Right. But for me, if we can help people with their mental health, we can absolutely gain ground in their physical health because it's all connected. And that's why I think one of the things that really bothers me about the Western medical model is that it does not take into account energy, spirituality, um, emotional component, these right. things matter. We are one whole unit and to kind of just focus on certain specific areas is a disservice. And that is one thing, that's one of the reasons why I, for the most part I've left traditional practice behind. Right, so as someone who experiences anxiety from time to time, I'm a young gay male from the South. I have plenty of trauma to, to spread anywhere. Um, if I was a patient or if I wanted to become a patient, what would that process be like? Yeah, so uh, usually an inquiry through our website and then you get connected with an intake uh, person that I set up a phone call, uh, briefs kind of screening, just determining exactly what you're looking for is this a proper fit. And then all our consultations are done by our nurse practitioner. Um, and then if everything goes well, they get connected with either a therapist or, you know, psychedelic guide uh, for kind of like a a prelim session, sure. and then if, again, if all goes well, they can get set up to do what we're using right now is ketamine. Ketamine sure. is the only legal psychedelic we have, right. uh, with others 
you know, on the horizon, hopefully very, very, very soon. But yeah, they get set up for their session and it's, uh, it's beautiful. They're constantly, there's somebody sitting with them the entire session. They're monitored. Uh, we provide a really tranquil, tranquil, beautiful environment, music, like a choreographed, uh, Right. Um, playlist. Um, we actually use these beds. They're called vibe beds. So it's pretty amazing. So uh, while you're in your experience, there's actually some um, vibration and feedback that, that correlates with the music you're listening to. It's pretty, it's really fabulous. Yeah, that yeah. sounds great. Yeah, but <laughs> the results we're having, it's amazing. Right. It's amazing to watch people's lives transform. Yeah, the clinical data is, is you know, overflowing with positivity, which is so interesting because we still consider this an alternative therapy mm-hmm. when some data is showing that it is superior to SSRIs, is superior to cognitive behavioral therapy, is superior to really what the traditional route would take a patient through, an expensive route, a time, uh, time I don't want to say time wasting, a, a heavy amount of time <laughs> that they have to spend usually in treatment through medication, therapy. Um, I've read as early as maybe a few visits, some patients can feel completely better and have complete resolution of some of their symptoms. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Yes. Some of the psychedelics have been shown to work. What's really interesting is they work very similar to SSRIs, almost the exact same um, binding site. But whereas SSRIs have been shown to only help us cope Right. which obviously is not healing. <laughs> Psychedelics have been shown to actually promote healing. Wow. So, and that's, that's what we're really trying to do in healthcare. We're not looking just to cope. Coping is not good enough. And that's really where I think we've been for, for, you know, for decades, and it's not good enough. So we really need to shift into healing, and that's what we're talking about now in the psychedelic realm is healing versus coping. Sure. And for those who don't know, SSRIs are the like basic, you know, medications you'd be prescribed for depression or anxiety, like sertraline, the generic form of uh, Zoloft or Prozac, which is uh, as a generic form, fluoxetine, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. It's a quiz question. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so as far as psychedelics, obviously this is a big topic for a lot of people. Uh, people use them recreationally. Uh, have you heard any data or heard anything about how psychedelics can be used in sexual health or um, relationships, anything? Along yeah, absolutely. Lines? So MDMA, initially, that's what it was used for. MDMA was used in couples therapy. Wow. It creates a kind of sense of um, empathy. It creates connection. Um, people r- kind of regard themselves and others in a more loving, more gentle manner. So absolutely, that's where really where MDMA was started and what's so cool is these meds people now think they're street meds and they are you know or street drugs but these meds started with really beautiful clinical results and again not getting into details but they were shut down and um became street drugs and are now making kind of this evolution which i'm grateful for but yes specifically for sexual health or relationship health mdma is remarkable it's interesting how you can have a medication that's beneficial to people, and the more you limit it, the more you find it available on the street. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because people will find a way. People, yeah, people, people will. want to live better quality lives. Right. And yeah, you can utilize these things recreationally. And is there a place for that? Sure, why not? But the clinical use is, again, it's, it's for me and for what we're seeing, far exceeds what we currently utilize. Yeah. I mean, especially like talking about the, the recovery space, you know, do you know the statistics on AA? Really, really bleak. Yeah. Like the relapse rate for alcoholics going to AA is like 95%. Yeah. Right. So, and um, there have been studies, I believe, using certain psychedelics can drop that to 50%. 
Wow. It's a huge change. I have a, a very limited, you know, perception of AA in regards to what we learned through training, but I had a personal experience as my stepdad was a heavy alcoholic and just watching him interact with my mom and watching him interact with me and throughout his life, some of the difficulties he had, you know, AA was really beneficial for him in regards to helping him stop drinking, but it did nothing for his mental health conditions. Mm-hmm. It did nothing for his other issues that were really the cause of the alcoholism, you know? And so I definitely think AA is is important and people find a lot of help there. Um, But, you know, always remembering that there is more to it. You know, a lot of times people who are going to AA, they're able to stop their alcoholism, but what is the root cause of that? You know, and getting to that, it sounds like this is something that at least speaking with a doctor, having some sort of treatment plan is is obviously uh, important with AA, but this could be an alternative to add to something like a counseling, you know, organization like AA, you know, seeking something that might help get them addressed with the trauma, you know, address the actual issue that's, that's resulting with their Yeah, well, right. There's exactly my biggest concern with the healthcare system. Right. The problem's yeah. not the problem. Right. So what's the root? How do we get to the root? We have to get to the root because otherwise it's a band-aid. If we don't know the root, we're not getting to, we're not, we can't solve the problem. We can cover it. We can cope with it, sure. but we have to get to the root. So I completely agree with that. And that's really what a lot of these psychedelic treatments are starting to, to uncover. Yeah. And um, I literally cannot pr- pronounce this word right. Psilocybin? Psilocybin. Yes. Do you know much about it? Yeah, I, I know a I'm, lot about it. I'm actually just kind of learning a little bit about it. This is super random, but a company on Instagram that actually creates gummies. And they're really big in, I think they're in Oregon or Washington, but they reach out to a lot of people, I guess, and they send them free products. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's legal. It doesn't sound legal, but they are a very legit looking company. I'm not going to say their name in case... They don't want me to say their name, <laughs> but we try. I tried a couple, and it's supposed to be microdosing. I didn't really feel anything. However, um, I've used marijuana in the past, and I feel things from marijuana, so I was kind of anticipating a similar reaction, and I didn't really feel anything. So maybe it was too low of a dose, but I'm still really interested. But I don't know how to safely like, you know, proceed with that. Um, I don't necessarily think we should advise people to do that. <laughs> No, but I'd love but, to address that. Though. But I would love to hear your thoughts on psilocybin and, and is there a benefit there? What what you know? I, yeah. I think you have probably a lot more knowledge than I do. Yeah, so there's a different, so there's microdosing psilocybin and then there's doing like a macrodose or a, a trip. Right. Very, very different. So microdosing, you should not feel anything. So the fact right. that you didn't feel anything. Oh, it, it worked. Yeah, so it should be <laughs> imperceivable. Right. So what microdosing is, it's taking a very small amount of psilocybin every day, or not every day. There are certain protocols, there's varying different protocols. But, um, for instance, I I have microdosed in the past, and here's what my experience was. The first few weeks, I felt absolutely nothing, which you shouldn't. So it wasn't until I started journaling and realizing, hey, you know, I really can't remember the last time I felt anxious since I started this. Or... I really, I, I realized when I was reading, so I, I love to read, I read every day, I could read like speed read with full retention, whereas in the past I would read like a page and be like, what did I just read? Right. So my concentration, my focus was was so sharp. Wow. I was sleeping better. I guess overall my mood was just more elevated. So it, it's, it's subtle, almost like you have to really sit into your day to day. It's not something you're going to walk around and feel different. Uh. And that's the beauty of microdosing. It just, over time you create kind of a bond with, with this fungus right. and you, yeah, it just, it just improves the quality of life on a very subtle level. So that's really what true microdosing should be. Right. 
Interesting. Yeah, that definitely makes more sense to me now. You know, I have tried uh, marijuana for anxiety, which it has helped. It does help in some instances, but the problem that I experience when I've ever used THC is you don't really know what journey you're going on. It's really about kind of how I've felt that day. You know, if I'm super anxious in some instances, it makes me super relaxed and it could be the same strain or the same whatever. And I could take it the next day and have a different type of anxiety or something else that's causing anxiety. And I'm having a completely different reaction. So I guess I kind of experienced that as a hallucinogen or a psychedelic. So I expected something similar with um, psilocybin, but now I'm, I'm eager to sort of retry it and see, because again, I didn't feel like I couldn't function. I felt actually completely fine. And so maybe after a few days or do you know like how long it typically takes for people to feel or, or it just depends it really just depends but again it's imperceivable what you it, it really takes getting really present with yourself and just right looking back at the, at the last week or two but i think a few weeks probably two weeks is probably right. a, an ideal time but it should you should just notice kind of an overall elevation in your mood and overall kind of better quality of life and that's what it was for me and i i know lots of people who have implemented yeah. that in their lives and it's um something i i'm actually uh, passionate about as well yeah and it's legal now in oregon i believe so yeah yeah so yeah, if you're in canada oregon too. in canada then this <laughs> is something you can do if not we do not endorse illegal things so no. but it is coming it is coming it is coming and this really is meant to provide education so people are aware that it is coming and you know maybe they'll look at us at some sort of as some sort of resource and we would be happy to answer questions if we either of us get them in our dms or wherever we get messaged after this podcast is released yeah I'm, I'm a member of um Thing, the Psych Psychedelic Medical Association. So I would love to, after this, get more involved and learn more because it's definitely my area of interest as well. So well, this is, I believe, the next revolution. This is the revolution in healthcare. For sure. It's my absolute belief. I don't know if you've seen, there's a documentary on Netflix about mushrooms and fungi and how there's, how, you know, important it is. And Fantastic fungi, that yes. one? Yes. Yes. I have not seen it, but... There was a book that I read that really is what spurred my interest for uh -huh. the most part in psychedelics called How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Oh. And there was a four-part Netflix series by the same name. Oh, uh, The series was cool, but the book was like mind-blowing. I have blew to my that. mind. It talks about the science, talks about this research, talks about how things were suppressed by the government. Um, <laughs> it's a remarkable book. Right. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of fear, right? The government and any any administrative body wants to keep us safe <laughs> and and sometimes you know that fear results in you know withholding information um and so you know it's i think just about really trying to allow the public to have access to information to make their own sound decisions talk to your physician talk to your provider if you don't trust your physician you probably need a new one mm -hmm. so talk to a physician that you do trust that's what we're here to do and if your physician isn't passionate about those topics find one who is i mean you're available and and there are plenty of of other physicians in other states and other cities that you know have passion um in regarding alternatives yeah. to to what's you know talked about more commonly i mean my personal opinion if you're a doctor or if you are a doctor and you are close off to what's coming yeah there's a problem yeah i definitely agree and i think that that is kind of the the old school way of thought though like in medicine you know before telehealth even in 2018 my perception of medicine was everything moves at an archaic pace that changed a little bit for me with telemedicine because it has really catapulted where telehealth has gone in those years but uh still like you mentioned i think the unfortunate reason things come to light a lot of times is 
uh, it becomes a startup. <laughs> it becomes a giant corporation. Mm -hmm. And I think we can change that by educating more providers to be more comfortable, to feel, uh, you know, uh, sound independently and, and to take, you know, um, responsibility as a physician to learn what we can offer patients instead of waiting for someone else to do it um, and charging Absolutely. people more than they need to be charged. <laughs> Absolutely agree. I think a lot of physicians have kind of felt that right now, especially just with the pandemic and how therapies have been um, explained differently and there's been a lot of confusion. And so um, I think we have kind of gotten some more intense responses to our points of view recently than ever before. And for me personally, I think every physician has the ability to make their own decisions. We're all human beings and we have different philosophies, different lifestyles. If your provider is not feeding you, if that's not the right provider for you, I think it's very easy, in my opinion, to find a new one instead of being abrasive in response. But sure. again, our system is built to where this is your PCP as designated by your insurance. So you don't even get the choice, mm -hmm. right? So you feel like you have to be abrasive if there's not a good relationship there. So heading back to what, uh, to what you wanted to talk about in regards to how you approach wellness, and I'm sure, you know, as, as I have received some negative feedback, um, but what, what is your point of view and, and how would you kind of describe your views there? Yeah, I mean, technology's great, right? Yeah. Obviously, we're this new technology being created every day, but I think medicine's getting overly complicated. There's so many expensive tests and you can order this and order that. It's just like, and it's kind of, patients have been geared now to just, when they go to their doctor, okay, what is he gonna order? Right. What are they gonna prescribe? Like, that's it. Like, it's almost like this, this game of, but for me, I think it's really simple. I really, I think it's really simple. And I think, again, it frustrates a lot of people. Like even like friends will call me or message me. They have a, a kind of symptom they want to discuss because really here's my belief on how the body works and how medicine could really ideally be tailored. And that's the body is constantly speaking to us, constantly. Symptoms are just our body speaking to us. And it's either telling us one of two things. It's telling us either we're doing something it does not like or we are not giving it something or doing something it needs. And that's it. That's what I believe. So when someone wants to know what they should do next or for me it's not what test can we order what can i prescribe it's what can we change yeah what can we change right and it puts the power back in the patient and that's really what frustrates me with western medicine is that the power is not in the patient the patients give over their power they they disempower themselves they walk in the room and they say fix me right right whip out your pad and fix me right and that's just that's not that's not how we heal. We heal through our choices, right? Right. We heal by listening to what our body is saying to us and making adjustments. So what can we change? That's always what I ask people. What can we change? And I ask the basics. What are you eating? What are you drinking? How's your stress level? How's your sleep? What can we change? What of those four basic things can we really look at changing? It, you know, does that take care of everything? Of course not. Right. But I'd say 97%, you know, around there of, of chronic illness is not listening to our body is speaking. Yeah. Right. Sure. I think, too, a, a lot of um, people, even myself as a patient in many ways, I view my provider as uh, someone I'm having a transaction with, you know, instead of a counseling session or uh, a mentor, someone who's helping me, you know, guide me to better health. I think I paid this much money. This is what my preconceived notion is of what I deserve when I'm in this visit. If I don't get it, then the transaction was one way. I didn't get what I wanted and I'm having a negative experience. And that is really, I think, been programmed in our heads because it's come, test, prescribe, leave. 
you know, that, that, that's, that, that's the format, that's the formula. And that's just not working. Yep. It's not helping people. It's making people sicker. It's making mm-hmm. people more reliant on medication. And like you mentioned, medication is necessary for many concerns, but many can be addressed with the self, with just self-awareness, understanding my body is speaking to me, understand that we're also speaking to our bodies. I think that's something else I'd love to talk about more is all the cells in our body are listening to mm-hmm. us oh, all constantly. day. Constantly, when you say I'm anxious, when you say I'm nervous, when you say I'm stressed, I don't feel good, this is wrong, your body's listening and responding just like it's trying to talk to you. And sometimes we just don't listen and respond. Like yeah. Should. Well, even that phrase you said, I am, again, we're getting spiritual now, but that phrase, I am, yeah. when you say I am something, you're speaking powerful words to the universe. Again, this might yes. be a little woo woo, but yeah, when you say I am anxious, I am this, I, you know, like, your body is, I agree, it's <laughs> listening, it's creating, and we, we, we produce a, we have a pharmacy within us, and our body yes. will create chemicals depending on the environment we provide, and that's, that's spiritually, that's psychologically, that's you know, physiologically. It's going to create a chemical environment to match that environment that we create. We create, right. for the most part. Yeah. I think, too, uh, you know, people want to sometimes, even myself, when I'm sick, want to take the responsibility out of my own hands. Going to the doctor feels like I'm putting responsibility on someone else for my sickness, for my illness. And granted, when you're not well, when you're sick, we also are very vulnerable and people do not like to be vulnerable. They want, uh, in me personally, when I'm vulnerable, my first response is, you know, fear and protection, right? And so I go to the doctor expecting them to take care of all my problems. I'm scared and I'm trying to protect myself. So when I don't hear what I want to hear, those are my two thoughts and that's what I'm going to put on my doctor. And it just really damages the relationship. And I think a lot of people don't also think about the relationship that they're building with their doctor. A, they don't have time to even think of a relationship with their doctor. They're seeing them for a very short period of time, oftenly. Um, but also, they don't see it as a relationship. They see it as a transaction. I don't know if you've experienced similar. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I think a lot of patients see the doctor as the gatekeeper to yes or no. Yes. Like, this is what I want. Either you're going to say yes or no, and like yes. it's like a parental it's like a parental um, transaction. I think it's a perfect word, a way of saying it. Yeah. And it's that's not the art of medicine. And the art of medicine, sadly, for the most part, is dwindling. Yeah, I, I, that, that is the, the interesting thing, too. I think a lot of, uh, even me as a provider, I often forget this is an art. I do have a say. I have a style. I have a format. I have a way of practicing that, again, it's not necessarily for everyone. We all respond differently to different people in different relationships. Having a physician is a relationship. If it's not feeding you, you need to find another one. Find a personality that you bounce with. Find a personality or a a method of care that aligns with your beliefs. And so, um, you know, that's kind of of where I have have had difficulty too with what we do is learning how to uh, still be myself and still be passionate about the things that maybe are not as popular or as common, like trying to avoid medication when necessary, trying to encourage patients to have a better diet, to focus on their exercise, but they hear it also everywhere, you know? Work out more. Okay, well, what does that mean mm-hmm. exactly? I already work out. I, I work all day and I'm on my feet all day. That's my exercise. Or I already eat well. I, 
I only eat fast food twice a week. You know, in, in everyone's mind, that can be enough. And for some people it is, but for me, it's not. I can't eat fast food at all. I feel horrible. I can't skip a day of exercise. I can tell my body is responding to me, telling me, you missed that day of exercise, and I know. And I'm anxious, I'm stressed, I'm not sleeping well, because your routine is disrupted. Are you a big believer in routine? Do you think that's 100%. Important? I think consistency, and, I, and more and more recently I've had this discussion with people, consistency I think is the key to everything. I think yes. if we were to, like to, to make like a list of character traits that really define success versus people who maybe struggle, consistency. Consistency. I, I mean, granted you could be consistent in, your, in poor choices, but obviously con consistent in choices that align with our, our greater goals. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like, uh, you know, for me, creating a routine is a struggle. It's something that I have to consciously uh, remind myself on a daily basis when I'm adding something or removing something. Do you find that struggle? And do you think, or do you think patients should be aware that this is work? It's not something that you're going to wake up one day and say, I'm going to start walking 30 minutes a day and it's just going to happen, right? It's, it's, there's work to be done. Slow. Yes. So I, 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 as I mentioned, I'm board certified in obesity medicine. I used to have my own medical weight loss practice years ago. Um, and I always, I, I, I always recommend slow, like let's start basic like what are you drinking do you drink soda great let's take that out do you drink juice let's take that out. let's start really simple and look i love personal trainers like a lot of respect to personal trainers but what always really concerned me about that is that they will take someone and they say all right tomorrow we're gonna start you on a, on a on a full food plan we're gonna get you in the gym we're gonna do all this at once and you throw too much change at a person they're gone they're yeah. gone so super the best way to start implementing new habits is to go really, really slow and be you know, kind to yourself, be gentle with yourself. But start slow and start simple and then move and then and then build upon that. Right. Right. I think that's that's uh, definitely great advice. And kind of to end and sum up like what we're talking about today with building routines and and focusing a lot on how to you can, you know, really help yourself be your healthiest self. A lot of people recently have been reaching out to me because I've lost some weight and I've been posting a lot more about things that I eat because I'm much more conscious about what I eat now. A year ago, actually, it's January, uh, the beginning of last year, this last year, 2022, I was with my partner and we were eating a dozen donuts a night, every single night. And I was about 190 pounds, but I felt muscular. I, I work out a lot. So it was kind of hidden, you know, the, the fat was kind of in mm. my face and, in, uh, you know, around my abs-ish. And I just realized at that point that I was, I had a problem, like a, an actual problem. Like I literally looked at my partner and said, I can't stop eating donuts. And I know it sounds comical because it is, but I literally every night, that was my reward. I had a long day. I would go to the gym for an hour or two. And that was my reward at the end of the day is 12 donuts. And I was concerned about how I was going to change this habit. And so we started making small adjustments. So I went from donuts to 12 to six, and then from six to two, two to a bowl of cereal, a bowl of cereal without cow's milk and almond milk instead. And then I would just do granola, you know, those little adjustments. And I didn't even realize what I was really doing, but I was just consciously trying to make small changes. And then by, you know, mid that year, I was like, actually, I can make massive changes if I just let them happen over time. So we started to eat less processed foods. And then by September, I decided I wanted to just kind of go off meat for a little while, maybe like a couple months, just all produce, which 
for some people is very extreme and I don't necessarily think that's the healthiest diet for everyone, but I wanted to try it to see how I felt. I lost like 20 pounds in two months, mm. but I only ate produce that did not come from a bag. We literally were going to the grocery store like every four days and it takes a lot of planning. If I told someone who walked into our office, I want to lose 20 pounds in two months and I said what I did, it's un unattainable, mm -hmm. impossible, it's a diet. And to me, a diet diets never work. And so it's more about that lifestyle modification and then learning what you can do with yourself and how you can eat smart. You know, so now I know I can cut out meat if I want to. I can just eat produce if I want to. And along the way we, you know, cut out sodas, things that were adding small calories, even olive oil, you know, I used to douse my vegetables in tons of olive oil. There's a ton of calories in olive oil. Mm. So little small changes, you know, can make a big impact in just those adjustments to your routine. But for patients who are right now at the beginning of the year trying to figure out, you know, how do they navigate a healthier lifestyle for themselves? Do you have any advice you would give just, uh, I guess, in general? Yeah, I mean, I agree. Small hinges swing big swing big doors. So yeah. small hinges swing big doors. Yeah. Um, but it's really getting clear. I think you know everything is based on a priority. So getting really clear if what you want long term is greater than what you want right now. Yeah. Just getting really clear with that too, because everything's exactly. a mindset, right? So exactly. getting really clear with do you really want the goals you say you want, and if so, start making very very small things, yeah. very very small adjustments. We are our habits. We are. Our health, our results in life are, are, are a result of our habits. Yep. So just start creating, but it's gotta be really, it's gotta be small. Yep. It doesn't have to be grand, cause that's, that's a setup for failure. I agree, and I think, you know, I come from a long line of negativity uh, in my upbringing and just self-deprecation, you know, I think we all can uh, relate to that. And so just reminding yourself what you can do. So many of my patients confront me with, I can't. I won't, I can't do it, it's not possible. And I don't understand how you can simply, how you can more simply say that you can literally do anything. You are in control of your entire body, your entire health. It just takes those affirmations, it takes that prayer, whatever you wanna call it, spirituality, your body's listening. So whether you're praying to God, your body's listening. If you're praying to the universe, your body's listening. If you're praying to your body, if you're talking to yourself, if you're meditating, your body's listening. And that is the spirituality. That mm -hmm. is the power. So just tell yourself you can do it. And stop labeling yourself, yeah. right? Like we hate, like people hate when they're getting, conf you know, getting restricted by by society or by government, right? right. How many of these things are self-imposed? Yes. We label ourselves constantly. I'm not this. I'm not that. I can't do this. I can't do that. So that's a self-constructed prison. Yeah, and and some people are really comfortable there. Mm. They feel safe there, and and the problem is is that it, it just leads them nowhere. It mm -hmm. leads them into to misery. But hopefully, you know, people eventually you know crack the code. It definitely took a while for me to figure out how I could you know at least be on this journey towards my best self. I don't think we ever really get there, but I certainly think you are on your journey. I'm on my journey. Hopefully, people get at least some information, inspiration from us. Um, but we're not here to definitely lecture anyone. We don't want to impose our beliefs on other people. It's really just about, you know, providing advice for people on what's worked for us, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe it will work for them. Maybe it won't. But I definitely think it's worth trying and it doesn't cost anything. Correct. <laughs> so I think we're out of time for today, but I'm a little obsessed with you. <laughs> So we're definitely going to have more sessions together, and uh, I'm really excited to have finally met you. I think we have so much in common, 
And uh, I think we're going to also beyond, you know, the podcast, get to hang out more and, and get to know each other more, have some fun and, and get to share that with everybody out there listening or watching. Um, but this has been a lot of fun. We hope you guys enjoyed it as well. And we'll see you next time. You guys, you'll hear us next time. How does this work? Oh. <laughs> That's it. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>